Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done about 370 of them now, and if you would like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and you'll see them all organized in various ways under the past interviews menu. This uh, show is made possible by the support of appreciative viewers and listeners, so if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, there's a donate button uh, on every page of batgat.com. My guest today is Shinzen Young. I interviewed Shinzen about two years ago, uh, two years ago, August, and I just listened to that interview this week just to kind of like brush up and see what we had covered so we didn't repeat ourselves. And if I do say so myself, I thought it was a great conversation. I mean, Shinzen is a brilliant guy. He's had an amazing life. And I, I think we, we really got into a lot of interesting stuff. So if you enjoyed this interview, you might want to go back and check out that one, too. You'll find it on batgap.com. I'd like to read a little bio of Shinzen for the sake of those who are maybe just listening in the audio and haven't read it on the website. Um, Shinzen is an American mindfulness teacher and neuroscience research consultant. His systematic approach to categorizing, adapting, and teaching meditation has resulted in collaborations with Harvard Medical School, Carnegie Mellon University, and the University of Vermont in the burgeoning field of contemplative neuroscience. Shinzen's interest in Asia began at the age of 14 when he decided to attend Japanese ethnic school in his native city of Los Angeles. And incidentally, I'll, I'll read this little bio of Shinzen, and we, we spent an hour on his bio in the last interview, but we won't repeat all that stuff in this one. We're going to get right into other things. Um, after majoring in Asian languages at UCLA, he entered a PhD program in Buddhist studies at the University of Wisconsin. As part of his thesis research, he lived in a Shingon Japanese Vajrayana monk, as a Japanese Vajrayana monk, for three years at Mount Koya, Japan. It was then that he received the name Shinzen. He also been deeply involved in Native American spiritual practices such as sweat lodges and sun dances with the Lakota Sioux. Also during the time in Japan, he became friends with Father William Johnson, Johnston, author of Christian Zen. Father Johnston helped broaden Shinzen's interest to include comparative world mysticism and the scientific study of meditative states. Upon returning to the U.S., his academic interest shifted to the dialogue between Eastern meditation and Western science. Shinzen is known for his interactive algorithmic approach to mindfulness and often uses mathematical metaphors to illustrate meditative phenomena. He is the author of The Science of Enlightenment, which is his newest book, which I just finished, well, read most of, Natural Pain Relief, and numerous audio offerings. Shinzen leads residential retreats throughout North America. In 2006, he created the Home Practice Program. These phone-based mini-retreats are designed to make deep meditation practice accessible to anyone in the world, regardless of their location, health situation, and time, or financial constraints. So, welcome, Shinzen. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to have you again. So, your book is entitled The Science of Enlightenment, and I thought it might be interesting to start by asking you just a couple of fundamental questions. The first is, you know, what is, what is science and what is it trying to accomplish? Um, well, you'll get a lot of different opinions as to the nature of science. Um, I usually recommend that people just read the uh, Wikipedia article on the scientific method. Uh, and you can see the different uh, opinions that people have had as to what constitutes science. 
Um, I think we have a general idea of what it is. There is some debate philosophically, and that's a little bit above my pay grade, actually. I'm not really trained in the field of uh, the philosophy. So I can't, uh, in all honesty, speak with a lot of confidence on the nature of science itself. I can say a few things from the point of view of a meditation teacher looking at science and from my own personal point of view, but you know I can professionally make a comment about enlightenment, for example, or meditation. Well, that was kind but, of going to uh, be my next question. Um, yeah, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer your question about science okay, first because it's a good one, but I just wanted to sort of give that little um, uh, caveat that this isn't my specialty like those other things are. Mm -hmm. But personally, when I think about science, I think about it as having two sides. There's a method that's called the scientific method that involves dimensional analysis. You take a complex system in nature and you sort of ask yourself, what are the fundamental variables? What are the basic dimensions? What are the atoms, the primes, the basis vectors that are the simple elements that combine to create this complex system. So one of the things that I think about when I think about the scientific method is this notion of divide and conquer. We're presented with a complex phenomenon and we ask ourselves, well, what is this, this complexity? Can we reduce it to relationships between more basic independent components. Perfect example in mathematics would be analyzing uh, integers into, um, into primes. That gives us a handle on the nature of natural numbers. Or analyzing uh, chemical element, uh, the, the complex uh, substances of the world in terms of like a periodic table of chemical elements. So one thing that is characteristic of the scientific method is, well, we do this careful analysis of what are the uh, basic elements. Another thing that characterizes the scientific method is that we make experiments and the, those experiments have predicted results and those results either show or they don't. And so th there is uh, an empirical validation. We can't just sort of weave some theory without backing it with experimental evidence. So there is uh, the use of experiment and um, working with the consequences of what happens when you do experiments. Then. And experiments can be reproduced by other people. It's not just one person say so. Then another thing that constitutes the scientific method is that we mathematically model the system in terms uh, or 
the aspect of nature that we're studying in terms of my favorite six words uh, in the English language, which are how much of what, when, and where interacting in what ways and changing at what rates. So we sort of make mathematical models using these variables. So one side of science is this scientific method that involves uh, breaking things down into their basic dimensions. It involves uh, experimentation and it involves mathematical modeling. So that's the scientific method. And then the other side of science is the body of knowledge that is built up over the centuries uh, by applying the scientific method. And this is where the power lies because an individual human being may not be all that smart. But what science does is it distills the intelligence of generation after generation after generation of people and we are the beneficiaries. For example, any high school student who learns calculus today will understand calculus better than Newton and Leibniz, uh, the great mathematicians uh, and Seki uh, was a Japanese mathematician that independently discovered part of calculus in Japan. But in any event, we can understand, any high school student can have a deeper understanding of calculus than those geniuses did because in the intervening centuries, other mathematicians vastly improved and we've distilled. And that happens in physics, it happens in all these areas. So one half of science is sort of, okay, it's a way of gaining knowledge. The other half of science is it's a body of knowledge that we, that grows and improves with time. Now what's interesting is that this a little bit parallels a notion in Buddhism, which is the nature of prajna. So prajna is usually translated as wisdom and the, the archetypal uh, representation of wisdom is the bodhisattva Manjushri. And Manjushri is portrayed with two attributes. He's got a sword in one hand and a book in the other hand. And the sword is the experiential that penetrates the veil of illusion and reveals deeper and deeper uh, knowledge. And the sword is a way of gaining knowledge. And depending on the Buddhist tradition, that might involve observing as it does in mindfulness. It might involve working with uh, don't know as in some aspects of Zen, but there's sort of a way of gaining knowledge that is meditation. And then there is the knowledge that you gain that can be written in a book and may grow with time, uh, did grow with time as masters uh, over the centuries continued to develop Buddhism. So the sort of a method to gain uh, spiritual knowledge and then the body of knowledge that is gained and grows with time is what in Buddhism we call prajna and that's symbolized by this bodhisattva manjushri. So it's sort of interesting that there is a little bit of a parallel 
between the nature of science, it's a method and it's a growing body of knowledge, and the nature of uh, uh, prajna or spiritual wisdom, it's a method which is meditation of different sorts and then there's a knowledge that is written down and evolves with time over the world uh, and that's symbolized in the bodhisattva by the sword on one hand and the book on the other so i guess that's what i would say about the scientific method and some possible parallels with buddhist thought right would it be fair to say in summary that um Science is a method whereby hopefully we understand nature as it is, irrespective of our opinions, beliefs, you know, distorted perceptions and whatnot. We're trying to attempt to understand the reality of the situation without any uh, subjective overlay that might, you know, distort what actually is. And that perhaps the very same thing could be said about spirituality, that it's a, a, an approach to understanding the 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 essence of things, the reality of things, um, without any taint of subjective delusion or ignorance. You're asking me would I agree with that statement? Would you, as a summary statement? I would broadly agree with the outline, mm -hmm. but uh, there's just one point that I think needs to be commented on. Mm -hmm. I would say for myself that I would not claim to have some knowledge of objective reality based on a lifetime of meditation. I would only claim that I have a knowledge of the nature of sensory experience. But what I know about sensory experience is deep, powerful, and important, but how that relates to the objective reality that a scientist investigates, that's a little bit of a tricky question. The tendency has been historically for mystics around the world to assume that the experiences that they have uh, either spontaneously or as the result of practice, that those experiences say something about the nature of objective reality. For example, the Buddha had experiences in his meditation of God realms. And those were very vivid experiences and people that meditate can have those experiences. Now, because of his time in his culture, Apparently, he assumed that those God realms objectively exist. He had meditation experiences of having had former lives. Those were vivid, and a modern meditator can have those experiences, and they will be vivid. However, those are sensory experiences. Does that mean that we literally have a multiplicity of lives? Well, I think that's a different question. Meditators can have the experience of floating through the air, of um, violating the laws of physics, uh, and so forth. These can be vivid experiences, but 
are we really violating the laws of physics? Well, people in an in ancient times assumed they were actually levitating or they were they actually did have knowledge of the future uh, and so forth or could manipulate the material world. Yoga sutras devote a lot of space to exactly those kinds of things, siddhis as they're called. Now, these are vivid experiences and they're significant experiences for any meditator. But do they mean that the material world actually is that way? Well, I wouldn't jump to that conclusion. Obviously, there's got to be some relationship between objective reality that a philosopher, a professional philosopher or a professional scientist claims to investigate and the sensory reality that a meditator uh, investigates. There's got to be some relationship, but what that relationship is, I think has to be handled very lightly. I'm not going to just immediately assume that because I have a certain experience, that gives me special knowledge about the nature of the objective world. Bertram Russell wrote a book about mysticism as a professional philosopher, criticizing this very, this, this very tendency that I'm talking about. So I think if we're going to really cooperate with the world of science, we meditators have to have some humility about our claims. I would claim that I know things about the way sensory experience works that most people don't know and they're damn important. <laughs> but I would not claim that I, I have special knowledge about the nature of material reality based on that. Okay. Well, in the last interview, you said that science and spirituality will eventually merge and become aspects of a single approach to understanding. And um, I would suggest that if we want to be scientific, then we, we can't just blithely buy into these subtle experiences and talks of cities and all that stuff, nor can we categorically reject them. We have to be scientific, you know, which is to say, t let's take them as testable hypotheses, perhaps and um, you know, see where that leads us. And, and maybe we'll eventually discover that there is some clear correlation between subjective experience and objective reality, or maybe we won't, but let's investigate it systematically. And if there actually ever was an example which could be replicated of somebody levitating or doing one of these things that Christ and many others are said to have done, St. Joseph of Cupertino and many, many others, then that says something very interesting about the fundamental relationship between consciousness and the laws of nature, which <clears throat> I, I think is, has exciting implications in many respects, including for science. Well, yeah. as far as um, having an open mind in the way that you just described, uh, I would say, hell yes. <laughs> yeah. In fact, here you say in your book, mystical experience can be described with the same rigor, precision, and quantified language that one would find in a successful scientific theory. Formulating a clear description of mystical, mystical experience is required 
prenuptial for the marriage of the millennium, the union of quantified science and contemplative spirituality, making unwarranted, sweeping philosophical claims about the nature of objective reality based on subjective experiences, not the way to go, which is what you were just saying. Um, so I guess the fundamental question is here, you know, can mystical experience be systematized? Can it be rendered scientific? Can there be intersubjective agreement, you know, so that we're not just sort of muddling around in, in you know, fantasies and hallucinations, but that we actually perhaps are using the, the, the subjective technologies of meditation and, and so on to um, explore the nature of reality in, in a way which is real, in a way which is not just um, imaginary, but we're, we're actually exploring, we're, we're, adding a, we're adding a tool to the scientific toolkit, namely the, our own nervous system, to enable us to ex- discover things which existing scientific tools such as telescopes and microscopes and so on, may not provide? I think that there are two sides to bringing science into meditation. Mm -hmm. One is what I call bringing the spirit of science into the teaching of meditation. And that's quite doable at this point in history. And... I would say that that's one of the things I've devoted my life to. So that's a a phrase for me to bring the spirit of science into the teaching of meditation. So the main aspect uh, of the spirit of science is or a an important aspect of the spirit of science I alluded to before. It's this notion of carefully analyzing the system that we're interested in into its basic dimensions and having a precise vocabulary for uh, talking about those dimensions. So I call my approach to mindfulness, unified mindfulness. The idea is not so much to create a system of mindfulness, but to create a way of thinking about all forms of meditation by taking each aspect of the meditative endeavor and making a clear analysis of its elements. So, for example, mindfulness itself. What are the basic dimensions of mindfulness? Well, I would claim that it's three attentional skills, concentration, power, sensory clarity, and equanimity. And then I'll go on to explicitly uh, state what I mean by those skills and give examples. I'm also going to claim that uh, those di- those three dimensions of mindful awareness can be further subdivided into sub-dimensions. For example, there's two sides to sensory clarity, the ability to discriminate elements or untangle, and the ability to detect subtle sensory occurrences. And there's um, two sides to uh, equanimity. There's the equanimity that you can sort of intentionally create 
by sort of opening to experiences or labeling in a matter-of-fact voice or keeping your whole body relaxed. That's equanimity that you have some control over. And then there's the equanimity that just happens to you. You fall into equanimity by meditating for long periods of time. It's a numbers game. And then the more you fall into it, the more uh, it becomes available. So there's sort of like two sides to equanimity two sides to sensory clarity, and then there are several dimensions to concentration. The ability to hold something small, the ability to hold something large in attention, the ability to have momentary concentration on a, a sequence of tar sensory targets as they come up, uh, versus the ability to hold the attention on just one thing for a period of time. So there's spatial and temporal dimensions to the concentration skill. So I give this very fine-grained analysis of the basic components of mindfulness. And here I'm using mindfulness to basically mean meditation. I'm defining it very broadly. And then, okay, what are the goals of mindfulness? Why develop these skills? Well, we can analyze, the quick answer is so that we can optimize total happiness. But what do we mean by total happiness? Then we can analyze uh, human happiness into dimensions and sub-dimensions. And then we can show how those attentional skills facilitate the attaining of each of the different forms of happiness. So now we've got something that looks a little bit like a scientific theory. We've analyzed the, the uh, practice into its dimensions. We've analyzed the result of the practice into its dimensions. And then we give an explanatory mechanism that links those skills to the results that we want, reducing suffering, elevating fulfillment, understanding ourselves at all levels, positive behavior change, ultimately a spontaneous a spirit of love and service, uh, getting enormous fulfillment from helping others. These are the five basic dimensions of human happiness in the way that I like to think of it. And I can show how those three skills optimize those five aspects of happiness. Well, this is beginning to look something like a scientific theory. There's explanatory mechanisms. There's a very clear vocabulary. It's a technical vocabulary, but it's well-defined. So I call that way of working, bringing the spirit of science into meditation. Now, why do we want to do this? Well, for two reasons. One is that I hope to make the classical results of, med of meditation, which are enlightenment, available to larger numbers of people by showing them how to work smart by bringing the spirit of science into the teaching of meditation, I hope that we can work smarter so that we can get results quicker and with less travail than the more traditional sort of renunciate monastic lifestyle. 
Now, I'm not going to guarantee that that is the case. Uh, that's just my hope. So one reason to bring the spirit of science into the teaching of meditation is, well, maybe we can get results faster and easier for more people. We can democratize enlightenment on this planet, or at least it will be a step in that direction. The other reason for bringing the spirit of science into the teaching of meditation is it then gives us a basis whereby we can collaborate with scientists, neuroscientists specifically. And that may, that's the second dimension of the science of enlightenment. So the first dimension of the science of enlightenment is, well, informing meditation practice with the spirit of science. I think I've done a pretty good job of that. The second dimension, we're just beginning. Now that we've informed our, we've created a science-like paradigm for how meditation works, we can now collaborate with scientists who will study meditative states in terms of biophysiology and we may be able to come up with uh, forms of knowledge that none of the great masters of the past had. And you remember I said there's two sides to the wisdom, right? There's the sword of Manjushri, which is the method of gaining wisdom. And then there's how the wisdom is sort of stored and gathered. Well, may be able to sharpen Manjushri's blade by collaborating with scientists who will probably themselves be meditators in most cases, so they sort of know what they're talking about. And as the result of that, we may be able to write new chapters in the Prajnaparamita literature that are radical innovations that then lead to technological innovations that then make uh, enlightenment go viral on this planet. I'm not going to predict that is going to happen, but I am going to say everything I know about science and everything I know about meditation tells me in my gut it could happen. I, I know that people are a little freaked out by all the shit that goes on in the world, but I'm a little less freaked out by all that. It's not that I'm not freaked out, but deep down I see this a slow glacial shift towards universal enlightenment on this planet. And it may move fast enough to save us or it may not, but I do see it happening and that's a source of for me personally enormous optimism yeah i agree with you i feel the same way and uh, it may not be as glacial as we think i mean it's just, it's subtle and it's kind of underground and but you know it's like the yellowstone caldera or something you don't know to what extent it has built up and it might blow at any time oh, a, i love that metaphor that's a great metaphor yeah I, yeah it could blow it could. <laughs> oh, that's right. That, I'm going to use that. I like that. <laughs> Good. Just occurred to me, actually. So you've got the intuitive wisdom. The pra we got your prajna mojo going now. Yeah, we do. 
There was a nice quote from H.G. Wells that you put in your book. He said, Wells said, it is quite possible that in contact with Western science and inspired by the spirit of history, the original teaching of Gautama, revived and purified, may yet play a large part in the direction of human destiny. So, in contact with science, inspired by the revived and purified. Those, those are key words there, I think. And the implication is that perhaps through the passage of time, the thing has become distorted and, and impurified. It's lost what the original teaching was. It's gotten garbled like the party game where you whisper something and it goes around the room and by the time it gets back to you, it's a completely different thing. And so what, what H.G. Wells was suggesting is that maybe Western science can help us um, bring a a kind of a scrutiny to ancient teachings which will restore them to their original efficacy, potency. Want to elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, sure, that's what Wells said. But my idea is more radical. <laughs> my idea is that Yes, we can uh, get rid of certain accretions that may be getting in the way, and that would be useful. And the science and critical historiography can help. Critical historiography can break down the entrenchments that certain sectarian approaches have about being the one true, only pure, original, etc., etc. Critical historiography militates against that kind of fundamentalist way of thinking about your own lineage. So that can be helpful. And also to bring a critical eye of science to things in, in general is a good thing. But remember that the historical Buddha himself probably believed a lot of things that are not uh, consonant with science. I mean, he lived almost 2,500 years ago. We, we read Euclid. Euclid is great geometry, okay? It still basically stands. But we don't necessarily believe in Zeus and Hera and uh, Hercules. Uh, which uh, Euclid probably did. Right. His geometry stands, whereas uh, his religious beliefs don't. So I think there are things in the original teachings of the Buddha, discoveries he made, that will absolutely pass the test of time. They're as good as gold. But I think that we may be able to do better, not just purify or not just get rid of some accretions that are getting in the way or drop things that are not consonant with a modern view, but we may actually be able to make new discoveries that were not available to the Buddha. The Buddha probably thought that the brain was a bone marrow. That's the way the brain is described in the Pali literature. It's a form of bone marrow. <laughs> and uh, well, we now know that that's not really what is inside your skull, okay? Right. In fact, what's inside your skull is the most complex 
piece of nature that we humans are uh, in contact with. It's amazing what's in there, and it's not bone marrow. Uh, and there's some relationship between the biochemistry of that chunk of matter and our experiences, both ordinary and spiritual, there's a relationship and the relationship is highly contentious, but for sure there is some relationship. And therefore it's possible that we will understand things about the biophysics of enlightenment. I'm saying possible, not will happen because, you know, as I always jokingly say, Yogi Berra said, um, I never make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> so it would, uh, I'm not a prophet of, you know, uh, hey, this, hey, the revolution is coming and the golden age is coming. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen, but I know that it's not a ridiculous idea that that could happen. And the that is discoveries about enlightenment that none of the masters knew, but that will uh, vastly accelerate uh, the ability of uh, modern people to experience that. And therefore the phrase I use is democratize uh, enlightenment. I just by living an ordinary North American life, I have more power and comfort and knowledge than the kings and emperors of the past. I mean, the sun king of France still had to piss in a pot. <laughs> you know, yeah. I have a flush toilet, <laughs> okay? Half the women in his court died in child labor. Well, we do a lot better now, statistically. We, we have power and we have comfort and we have knowledge that w would have been the, uh, the, the, the drooling envy of the most powerful and knowledgeable people of the past, just because I happen to live in the United States. So, or the developed world. Now I know that there's still a lot of inequality on this planet, but science has democratized power, knowledge, and convenience. It, there are hundreds of millions of people that live better than kings and potentates of the past. Mm. Well, maybe science can do it again. Maybe science can democratize spiritual uh, aristocracy. It's also democratized communications. 50 years ago, I would have had to own a TV station to do what I'm doing right now, you know? And here, here we're just broadcasting all over the world and thousands of people it's, are watching it. And Right, and 1,500 years ago, if you were a Chinese person that wanted to study Buddhism on its native soil, you would have had to go from China to India, across Turkestan, where your chances of survival were not great. <laughs> and then you'd have to get back to China somehow. Yeah. 
So you would be like risking your life. And when Xuanzang, uh, this is a famous, the most famous Chinese pilgrim is was named Xuanzang. And, uh, you know, there's this whole thing about the monkey. Uh, if you go into like Peking opera or whatever, you'll see lots of plays about him. You can get them on the YouTube. So first of all, it was at the risk of his life. And secondly, he like literally had to take donkey loads of gold to, you know, pay for this endeavor to get this stuff. Mm. So at the risk of your life and at the cost of a fortune, you would get teachings that you now get for free. <laughs> on the internet. Massively on the internet. Yeah. So, you know, this is, this is pretty good. Yeah, I think it relates to what you were saying a little while ago about the, there's a sort of a upwelling of, of knowledge in the world that could, could save it. And you know what, what you're also saying about science just now and, and how we have it pretty good compared to um, even the aristocrats of a few hundred years ago. Um, I think sometimes spiritual types might have a, a, a notion that we're going to go back to some agrarian pre-industrial society and that will be the ideal. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, the genie's out of the bottle, and you know we're not going to, unless there's some catastrophe, we're not going to revert to a pre-technological world. So I think if we want to gain some vision of what a, a more enlightened society might be, it will include both spirituality and technology. And I think, as you've been alluding to, it will there will be a kind of a marriage of the two, a cooperation or collaboration of the two which we're going to be talking more about in this interview. But technology certainly has its benefits, like you said, childbirth or you know, having, having a, a tooth decay, I mean, could kill you in, 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 before modern dentistry. So there's all kinds of good things about it. We don't want to, we don't want to let go. Okay. Well, any comments before I continue? No, no. All right. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Well, one thing I want to mention, based on things you were saying, is the idea of a neurophysiology of enlightenment. That I think a lot of research, there have been researchers working on that for decades now, and they're coming along. Um, but I think the hope is that whatever enlightenment is, and, and not only the full enchilada, but various jhanas or various stages of samadhi or whatever else, this, this could all be mapped out and uh, understood in terms of its physiological correlates. And I think that would have a number of values. Um, one, it would be a sort of a, a confirmation of, you know, I mean, there's the whole notion of the master confirming that you're enlightened. Well, maybe you, you'd also want to step into an EEG lab and see what's going on. And, and <laughs> yeah, if I could just jump in and make a comment. Sure. Um, I have a lot of sympathy for people that are in the early stage of their practice mm -hmm. <laughs> and early stages uh, sort of the first 10 20 years okay i remember how agonizing it was for me to try to reconcile the conflicting claims and maps of these various traditions it was like excruciating. It's like this one says this and this one says that. And, you know, I've got to get this and will I ever get that? 
some people who criticize the notion of a science of enlightenment point to the fact that there tends to be general agreement among, uh, among in the hard sciences. I mean, there's disagreement at the cutting edge of innovation, but there's general agreement about things. It does, if you take uh, Newtonian physics and you learn it in Paris or you learn it in Kampala or you learn it in Tehran, or you learn it in uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, or Burlington, Vermont, it's going to be the same. There's not going to be like, well, actually, <laughs> Newtonian <laughs> physics uh, that they teach in Paris is completely wrong. Only the one that we teach in Burlington is right. So people point out to the, uh, they point to uh, what appears to be a lack of a unified paradigm among the meditators of the world. The most glaring example conceptually is half the enlightened people in the world say enlightenment is realizing there is no self and the other half say it's realizing your true, your, true, your self. true self, and this would appear to be that oh, there's there's either two completely different kinds of enlightenment, or more likely there's two ways of talking about the same critter, right. but it's frustrating, and so I think two things are going to repair that situation. One is you uh, something you already alluded to, which is that. There's more communication now. People are willing to talk and uh, senior masters who have a modern point of view are willing to respectfully discuss and sort of see if they can come to some sort of uh, understanding of that brings a more unified perspective. So there's that spirit of communication but then there's also what science brings to the table because this lineage might say this and this lineage might say that, but let's, let's put them in the scanner and see what's going on there. Now, that's not today's scanner though. Today's scanner is not very good. So today's, today's neuroimaging technology is not capable of uh, arbitrating disagreements among traditions. It it's, does not have the power to do that. But 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, it may have the power to do that. So we're now bringing in a, um, a sort of objective third party to the discussion. And so the combination of the willingness of masters who have worked in disparate ways to discuss their experiences among themselves openly. Combine that with what science may bring to the table from a third person or objective point of view. I wouldn't be surprised if in this century we actually end up with uh, some sort of fairly unified model for how all forms of meditation work. Yeah, not only all forms of meditation, <clears throat> but all aspects of experience that meditation 
reveals and enables one to explore. And th this whole point is very exciting to me. I, I've given a couple talks on it recently and brought it up in a number of interviews. But I think that the whole notion of a uniform map and, and the wor work toward arriving at one is a really important idea, a really important endeavor. I think it may take more than this century. It may take a few hundred years, but who knows. But in any case, it's like if you think about what we do with maps, when, when Lewis and Clark first set out to explore you know, North America, they had no idea what was out there in terms of the rivers, the mountains, or anything else, and they, they encountered all sorts of difficulties that they might have circumvented if they had a better idea of the topography. So that relates to the notion that if, if we have a, a clearer understanding of the spiritual territory, um, we will not get waylaid, we'll not get hung up, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to sort of take legitimate shortcuts and save ourselves a lot of trouble if we, if we understand what's what. Might save ourselves from getting involved in some weird cult for 20 years or something, <laughs> giving away all our money. If we recognize, if we have a clear understanding of what enlightenment actually is supposed to look like. Another thing is that you know, it's inspiring to have a clear understanding of what's a, what the possibilities are. It's a motivator, right? If you really understand what what the how life could be lived, it, it should be the most inspiring thing in one's life. Um, and here we are today, you know, 150 whatever years after Lewis and Clark, 100 to maybe 200 almost, and uh, you know we have the whole continent mapped out to the millimeter with all sorts of technologies, and there are all kinds of maps, and and they they refer to the same territory, but they they each serve different purposes. So you know we have topographical maps and airline maps and and gas pipeline maps and road maps and all these different things, all referring to the same thing, but all um, providing, each providing some value. So perhaps all the different traditions won't necessarily fall into lockstep with one another and, and be saying the very same thing, but they'll say, well, you know, we, we kind of specialized in this aspect and here's what we have to contribute and, and we over here you know, have this to contribute and yet we, we totally agree with one another. These are just sort of different different feels of the same elephant. Yeah. It will be evident that it's the same country, yeah. you know, not some other country that we're describing. Yeah. So that's that's a fascinating thing. And, and you know, and it comes back to what you said before about um, science and spirituality merging to become aspects to a single uh, approach to knowledge um, because both will have to be involved in this. Um, Otherwise, I don't think that subjective, merely very spiritual people talking to each other, I don't know if they'd ever totally reconcile their, their experiences and their perspectives. But when you bring in a physiological understanding to it, I, I think it completes the puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I wonder about, we haven't talked, we talked a bit about meditation, you were talking about it, and... You know, I, I also have been meditating since the 60s, you know, kind of a few hours a day on average. And based on what I learned, I, I had a very different approach to it. And when you use the word concentration, I don't know always if you're talking about the actual act of concentration as a method or the quality of concentration that develops through whatever one has practiced, so that the mind is spontaneously concentrated, for instance, as a result of practice, not that you're always having to willfully concentrate. Yeah, that's a very important distinction. Yeah. Uh, when I use the term, 
I say that you can think of concentration as the ability to focus on what you want to focus on. Mm -hmm. So that is different from the exercise that may in, involve some effort to develop that ability. So a good analogy would be um, going to the gym. You have to work to uh, uh, lift weights, but as the result of that, you elevate your base level of strength. So you're not strong just while you're pumped in the gym, that uh, you take that strength and it's available to you all day. In the same way, many of the exercises that develop concentration do involve an effort when you do them, but as the result of that, they elevate your base level of concentration. And I define base level of concentration as how concentrated you are in daily life when you're not particularly trying to be concentrated. Yeah. So the distinction that you're making between what might be an effortful exercise to concentrate and the a person's base level of concentration, that's an important distinction because sometimes people say, I don't want to learn to concentrate because then I'll just be allocating energy all day to just concentrating. But once you understand the parallel with physical exercise, you see the flaw in that uh, particular uh, objection. Also, you'll notice that I actually mentioned this before. I didn't say anything about how broad or how narrow Sometimes when people say concentrate, they think it must be something small. A concentration is a limiting of the attention. Now, the ability to hold something small is one of the dimensions of concentration. That's the contractive side. But there's also the ability to hold large pieces of experience at once. That's a dimension of concentration also. So sometimes people will say, well, I don't want to learn concentration because then I'll always be restricting my attention and I won't be able to encompass a larger field. And that's that objection comes because of uh, having a limited definition of concentration. Also, I mean, if we ask ourselves, well, why does the mind get concentrated on something. If you're watching a really good movie, for instance, you know, you're just lost in it. You're totally focused on it because it's providing some kind of gratification, some kind of happiness or fulfillment or something. So you're, you don't have to discipline yourself to pay attention to it. You're just absorbed. Um, so if, you know, consciousness or the, the deeper values of experience are really imbued with ananda, you know, if there's bliss to be experienced at those subtler levels of awareness, then it would seem that um, the mind would be drawn to them naturally if given the opportunity, and that it wouldn't actually even take concentration to allow the mind to, to, to move in that direction. It would do so willingly if, if given the chance. Now, then of course the question is, well, why does it wander off? And that, that might be another explanation, but uh, at least the inward stroke, it seems to me, could be, could be effortless. Well, that's one of the main 
strategies for developing concentration. Mm -hmm. You use clarity. Remember, I always say concentration, clarity, equanimity, right? So you use your clarity to notice the intrinsic pleasure of the concentrated state. And then that creates a positive feedback loop that motivates you to concentrate even more. That's sort of the basis of the jhana practices. Mm. The problem with the TV thing is, the good news is you're very concentrated. The bad news is you're not consciously aware of that. So there's little or no learning involved. Yeah. Well, mea culpa, I might as well just say that, you know, I was a TM teacher for 25 years and and I don't I'm not in the TM movement anymore I'm not on a soapbox for that practice um, but there was a certain logic to the the me mechanics of it which was that um, you know the that not subtler levels of the mind are intrinsically more charming or more gratifying and that the, the technique was such that without actually employing any degree of concentration whatsoever just eff very effortlessly repeating a mantra the, the mind would settle down and indeed you know, within minutes you were experiencing something more blissful, something more fulfilling, and the mind just settled, 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 and very often would um, go beyond thinking altogether, in pure consciousness, and then back out again. But um, so there was a sort of an indoctrination. Well, here, hmm? Here's a perfect example of where bringing the spirit of science into a discussion mm -hmm. will clarify the situation. Because... Um, we have distinguished between concentration as an ability mm -hmm. and uh, the exercises that a person may do in order to enhance that ability. Yeah. And if you listened really carefully to the way I stated things, mm -hmm. I said that uh, some of those exercises may involve effort. Yeah. But I didn't imply that every exercise that develops, that elevates your base level of concentration will necessarily involve effort. So some of them may not. So, right. And so your TM would be an example of a method that will elevate your base level of concentration, but without you making a concerted effort to concentrate as right. you do it. And I have a technique that also works on that same principle that I call do nothing. Um, <laughs> I describe it on the internet. So the do nothing technique, you're not efforting to develop concentration, clarity, or equanimity, but you are setting things up in such a way that uh, those things will develop with time. If TM works, then it would represent an example of that. Without making the effort to concentrate, you can still elevate your base level of concentration by establishing a simple structure. In the case of TM, it's the mantra. Mm -hmm. In the case of do nothing, it's something a little different. But they have a similarity in that they if, if they work for an individual, and different things work for different people, but if, if it works, it actually does dramatically elevate your, your ability to focus on what's relevant in daily life, but without you having made the effort. 
Yeah. But here's also where you get into tricky things, okay? Because some people get in their own way by making too much of an effort and that becomes problematic. Some people get in their own way by not making enough of an effort and that becomes problematic. So the way that um, you, there's, there is a temptation in the spiritual marketplace to compare your best to the other guy's worst. Hmm. So the efforting approach doesn't work. There's a reason why. And the non-efforting approach is the, is the remedy. If the non-efforting approach doesn't work, there's a reason why. And the efforting approach is, uh, is the remedy, okay? But what people will often do for PR value is they'll say, well, if you do X, it will develop this problem, but we have the solution to that. Mm. Well, what they really mean to say is, if you do X and things don't work out, it's probably because of Y and we have a solution to that. But the, the reverse of all of that is also true, okay? If you do their thing and it doesn't work out, there's a reason why. <laughs> and it's probably the thing that this other guy has a solution to. Yeah. So I would just say, I would caution anyone to just not buy the hype. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a reason why I'm no longer in the TM movement, and uh, and I'm definitely not a one-size-fits-all kind of guy. You know, I mean, having done this interview show for seven years and interviewed all these hundreds of people, I'm really open to everybody's whatever works. You know, and 95% of the people who learn TM stop doing it. <laughs> Probably not. I don't know what the exact percentage, but most people drop out. So obviously, it doesn't work for everybody, or 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 maybe they started doing it wrong. But you just have to find what works for you, and then really, and like you say, there's a there's a phrase from the Vedas someplace that says, "Be easy to us with gentle effort." So that it kind of implies that you know ease and effort in proper proportion. Yep. Yeah. That's the basic dialectic. Yeah, and and basically whatever works. That's really the the bottom line. Um, you know, if something's not working for you, then maybe you should be doing something else. But you have to give some something a fair shake, you know, before just giving up. You don't want to be a dilettante. A couple of questions came in. This is um, from Marie in the U.S. This is an interesting question. Who or what is it that becomes enlightened? Yes, this question comes up over and over again. Very common question and a very legitimate question. So different teachers are going to attempt to answer this in different ways. But unfortunately, usually the answer is not very satisfactory because it's something that's difficult to put into words. So the real answer to your question will come from your own experience. So what makes this a difficult question to answer is the grammatical form of the question. 
the only way that we can ask questions either in our mind or speaking to another person is we have to put them in the grammatical form of human speech and if you ask the question who or what grammatically it it requires a noun or a pronoun as an answer. Nouns and pronouns are grammatically called substantives. They're things. So the question constrains an answer that says this thing. It gets enlightened. But that's not really the way it works. So the... the um, There's also the, that verb in there, gets. Like there's this thing that some someone gets. You know? Yeah. First of all, it's not a thing, <laughs> and secondly, it's not a getting. Right. So the question is difficult to answer grammatically, uh, directly. So then the answers that the teachers give always seem like they're trying to avoid the question. <laughs> Well, in a sense, we are, because the question is set up in such a way that uh, the answer would be misleading. Yeah. But here's one way to think about it. I'm going to give you some ways to think about it. So one way to think about it is, let's think about it in as a different question. Let's think about it as the question of who meditates. Now that's not exactly the same question that was asked, but let's just reformulate it. So the most people have had the experience of getting in a car and arriving at a location and you realize that you were not aware of driving the car, but you didn't crash. So even though sort of you weren't there, obviously someone was driving that car. Now, if I were to ask you who drove the car, how would we answer this question? Well, we might say that the habit of driving drove the car. Hmm. Driving had become second nature enough that it didn't require anything else. You just get in the car and somehow parts of you know how to drive without a you being there. So for experienced meditators, they don't really meditate. There's no meditator there meditating. The habit of meditation meditates. Mm -hmm. The fact that you've meditated all these years means that when you sit down to practice it just happens the circuits know how to do it without a you being there so one facet of a possible answer would be well uh, if we reformulate the question who meditates well the habit of meditating meditates or another way to think about it is that if we think of meditation as having 
three skills, concentration, clarity, and equanimity, then we could say that the sensory circuits themselves have developed more concentration, clarity, and equanimity. It's not like me as the meditator has those qualities. Those qualities are in the fabric of my sensory circuits and actually the motor circuits also. So often mindfulness is described as observing phenomena and that's an okay description, but it's not really accurate. The more accurate phenom uh, description would be that mindfulness um, elevates the base level of concentration, clarity, and equanimity in the sensory and motor circuits. So it's a, actually a change not in the person, but in the neuronal circuits that underlie what they see, hear, feel, and what they do say and think. So it's actually not so much observing things as elevating the base level of certain qualities in your nervous system, in the fabric of the nervous system. And when those qualities pass a certain critical value, then enlightenment just sort of happens. That's one way to think. That's another way to think about it. Yet another way to think about it is any sensory experience, anything that we see, hear, or feel on the inside or outside, and any motor experience, anything that we do say or think, it doesn't happen instantly. There's a few tenths of milliseconds, a few hundreds of milliseconds, or longer that is needed for the depths of the unconscious to process at the level of, of the nervous system so that an action can manifest through your muscles or a sensory experience can percolate up to consciousness. So every sensory experience and every motor experience has a subconscious thing that only lasts for a very short period of time that precedes the conscious experience. Well, it turns out that for everyone on this planet, those that first mind, that first consciousness that uh, Suzuki Roshi called the beginner's mind. But in his book, the actual Japanese characters for beginner's mind don't mean beginner's mind. They mean initial consciousness, shoshin. So initial consciousness that only lasts for a fraction of a second is the primordial effortlessness of nature itself. It's just like a ripple spreading on the lake. And one way to think about enlightenment is that you elevate the base level of your concentration, clarity, and equanimity until ordinary experiences reflect that primordial 
infection. The other way to look at it is you develop the clarity to see that that primordial perfection is always there. And from that perspective, the answer to your question, who gets enlightened, is gets enlightened is the person that has always been enlightened and is none other than the entire universe. Yeah. And that which is beyond the universe or more fundamental than the universe. I mean, this enlightenment is often referred to as consciousness sort of waking up to itself, you know, the self realizing the self by the self. And of course, that's not Buddhist terminology, but could be translated into that. Let's, let's spin to another question by her, which is related. Um, is enlightenment a phenomenon or is it non-phenomenal? If it's non-phenomenal, then how can the scientific method be applied to it? I would say that uh, enlightenment is non-phenomenal, but our awareness is of it is phenomenal. That's a sensory experience. That primordial perfection is not a sensory experience, but a fraction of a second after it has occurred, the meditator looks back and has a, has a, an experience of something that was not an experience. And we can certainly scientifically say things about that because it is an, an experience. Yeah. Also, um, even though maybe the deepest value that, is, has, be, that has become a conscious experience in, in the state of enlightenment is beyond all relative consideration, it, it seems that it would have it, it has its impact on the relative, and that can be measured. Yes, that can uh, be measured uh, physiologically, and so on. And um, it can also be measured in terms of a uh, a person's behavior and fulfillment right. in life. All yeah, that absolutely. Kind of stuff. And there's even a word in Sanskrit. We talk about technical vocabulary. This is one of my favorite words in Sanskrit: prishta, labda. Laukika jnana. Okay, it's like how many syllables is that, right? So, prishta means afterwards. Labda means gained or gotten. Mm -hmm. Laukika means ordinary, mm -hmm. and jnana means knowledge. Mm -hmm. So, after a cessation experience, which by an objective clock could be a fraction of a second or it could be hours. Uh, after a cessation experience, which is non-phenomenal, consciousness returns and looks back. And that looking back is the prishta labda laukika jnana. That's an ordinary sensory experience that, that represents something that was beyond sensory experience. Yeah. And that we can probably look at neurophysiologically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would even say that once, you know, that, that sort of thing which is beyond sensory experience becomes stabilized so that it's 24-7, it's not something you need to look at 
or look back upon continuously in order to live. It's it's just there, uh, but you could reflect on it if you wished, and uh, and yet you can't put your finger on it like you can on a, a table or something like that. There's just sort of this in, intuitive knowingness that 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 silent, uninvolved kind of unmanifest value is perpetual. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Here's a couple of questions from Stefan Mueller in Germany. Part one. Do you believe in stages of consciousness or enlightenment, like the ten fetters in Buddhism, and which do you prefer to use? Which does he mean which? I mean, which stage? I'm not sure. Which model? Which model? Okay. Yeah, I'm guessing which model. Well, I think that those models can be useful, but I would not get too fundamentalist uh, about it. So I look at them and I find them useful. My favorite one is the 10 ox herding pictures mm, I like that. from Zen. Yeah. But that's just my personal favorite. I like that one. And then he asks, uh, and I can help you with this if you want to dwell on it, but he says, do you know Maharshi's model? I think he means Maharshi Mahesh Yogi's model, and broadly, what are the differences in the Buddhist models? If you like, I'll take 30 seconds to tell you his model. And you yeah, that would be helpful because I'm, I don't yeah. have it. Well, he outlined seven states of consciousness, basically. Waking, dreaming, and sleeping being the first three, which everyone experiences. Transcendental consciousness, meaning the you know, Turiya, fourth state, beyond the first three, eyes closed, no no sensory experience going on, just and then cosmic consciousness, a fifth state in which the pure pure awareness was maintained twenty four seven along with ordinary waking, dreaming and sleeping. And then God consciousness, which he refine, sometimes referred to as refined cosmic consciousness, in which the senses uh, the heart had expanded, the senses had had become refined to the point where the celestial value of, of, of creation is routinely apprehended uh, in our day-to-day activity. And then finally, unity consciousness in which the objects of the senses are perceived or in terms of the self. In other words, the, the essential nature of what we are and the essential nature of what the thing is, are, it's the same thing, and one appreciates that experientially as a living reality um, throughout throughout one's life ordinary uh, in ordinary. The ordinary experience of oneness basically that's that's the, it in a nutshell so that last stage would be where there's no fundamental separation between ordinary sensory events and the formless which is their source would that be an accurate way to put it yeah Kind of like the essential oneness of everything is one's living experience, so that the differences are still experienced to some extent. And in, in Sanskrit, there's the term lesha vidya, which means faint remains of ignorance, meaning there has to be some appreciation of difference, or you couldn't feed yourself or walk through a door. But but that primarily unity has come to predominate. Oh, I see what he's yeah, saying. Yeah, the, the, the unified value of everything has come to predominate in your experience. This is very interesting, actually. I'm enjoying this a lot, hearing this from you. Did he have Sanskrit terms for all of those? Yes. 
and I don't know even know if I can remember them all, but but there yeah. would uh, could could you send me a place where I could see them? Yeah, I could research that. I know that. Here, yeah, go ahead. Here's what's behind it. Very often, if you want to have some sort of, you know, we were talking about having like substantive conversations between traditions. Mm -hmm. One of the tricks that you learn very early on, if you do academic studies of these things, is you always want to find out what the term in the original language was. Mm -hmm. Because if you start just using translations into English, it gets very messy very quickly. So it would help me a lot to see how in how in sense what the Sanskrit words he used for those are. Okay. So you ran through it fairly quickly, but it pretty much sounded maps on to my own personal experience. So sounds pretty good. Okay. <laughs> That's interesting. So do you want to talk about your own personal experience? I know it's kind of a Buddhist thing that you don't talk much about your own, <laughs> your own experience I, I, of enlightenment. I, I, I don't mind talking about the experience. I, I, I talk about it on the YouTube. <laughs> yeah. So for instance, you know, we talk about waking, dreaming, and sleeping, and everybody experiences those. And then I'm sure you've had you know, states of samadhi or satori or whatever, right? Where there's just pure awareness without any sensory activity. Yeah. Yeah, many of those probably, and then was did it? Was there a certain stage you reached at which um, that pure awareness, whatever terminology we want to use, was retained twenty four seven even during deep sleep? Well, I I still can lose consciousness mm -hmm. uh, at night. I, I don't necessarily. I'm not necessarily conscious all night every night. Right. Um, and I, by conscious, I wouldn't mean necessarily sensory consciousness, not like you're experiencing what's going on in the room, but just no, awareness but, itself. Senses may be totally shut down, but awareness itself. Yeah, I would say that that pervades uh, uh, every night for me. Sometimes it does. Okay. But during the daytime, yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's that thing about refined perception. And we, we talked about this a bit in the last interview and you were talking about how in Zen there's really no discussion about that sort of thing the kind of the subtle realms and you know the beings who may live on those in those well, realms. Well oh, there's a discussion of it they call it Makyo. Uh, yeah I've run uh, into that. They, <laughs> they, uh, they're dismissory of it but you know because they see uh, especially in traditional cultures how this can sort of shunt you away from the liberation path. But I have a long discussion of it in my book where I'm a little more sympathetic to it, I guess we would say. I don't just dismiss um, it. This is the, the Science of Enlightenment? Yeah. I didn't get to read the whole book cover to cover. What do you say in the book about that? I've, I'm pretty sure there's a chapter on there on the realms of power. Okay. So what do I say? Um, well, I say a little bit what the Zen teachers say, but then 
I say something else in addition. Mm -hmm. So in Zen, the realms of power are called makyo in Japanese. And kyo means experience or realm. And ma is short for mara, which means the devil. So that's obviously a pejorative term. So the, um, the idea being that if you buy into the content of those experiences, that that's going to shunt you away from uh, the direct path to liberation. So that's sort of the standard thing. However, my take on it is informed by that, but also it's a little broader because the other thing is, well, the good news is that if you're having these power phenomena, which is basically the wish list for new age, you know, spirituality, it's like, you know, encounter entities, gods, ghosts, ancestors, angels, power things, uh, you know, um, remember your former lives or um, it's maps on to a lot of shamanic experience and so forth uh, culturally around the world. Well, my thing is, if those phenomena are happening, then that's an indication that you're dropping to a deep level of consciousness. So that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. It's actually a kind of feedback to tell you that you're going deep. So in native cultures, this would be called the spirit world. Of course, it's very real uh, to those cultures. So there are the spirits, let's say, and then there's what we might refer to as the great spirit or the source, which in Buddhism would be called the Dharmakaya. And I would take that as that primordial perfection, that formless doing that molds ordinary and extraordinary experience moment by moment. So if you're encountering spirits, it means you're getting close to the great spirit. That's good. But the great spirit is formless. So by paying attention to the energy flow that in that envelops the manifestation of those unusual phenomena, you're keeping yourself pointed towards the formless source that is the great spirit. And so observe in terms of traditional Buddhist vocabulary, by observing the impermanence of the power realm experiences, that's pointing you to the, the force that molds them. We can draw a little bit of a metaphor from physics. Force is proportional to acceleration, okay? So as you're watching how these things sort of vibrate and undulate, you can get a sense that there is a formless activity of consciousness that is molding them. 
them meaning these spirits. And that's the same thing that molds the ordinary so-called physical world. And by doing that, you ride the spirit world directly down to the great spirit. But if you get either frightened or uh, enchanted by the contents of the spirit realm, then that you could go off in a horizontal direction and not realize it. And so you stop going deep, you just go out into the power realms. And our remote ancestors practiced shamanism and the spectrum of classical shamanism around the world is a spectrum of angles. On one, one angle is you go out into the power realms and you don't go any deeper into purification or get closer to the formless. And those people become one kind of shaman that's sometimes called a, a witch or a sorcerer or a power person. Then at the other extreme are the people that just deconstruct, deconstruct, deconstruct until they find the no self, true self, formless source of it all. And that extreme is sometimes traditionally called a holy person. And then there are an infinity of oblique angles where your growth has a component of interest in the content of the power realms, but also a component of movement towards the formless. And so that spectrum is the real old time religion of this planet. Um, it's what most people did for their spirituality for most of human history. So it's something to be honored from that point of view, but it's also something to be understood. I think that was a great answer, very comprehensive, you know, very balanced. And um, I've run into these people who utterly dismiss any sort of subtle perception as macchio. And, you know, my, my response is, yeah, but people having this stuff, you know, and you know, I have friends who see angels and, and they're not trying to see angels or anything else, but that's their everyday experience. So it seems to be something that's going on. Um, but I, I think what you said, the key point there is that, I mean, you think of people like Jesus or, you know, great sages and saints. Apparently, this kind of thing was part and parcel of their experience, but their experience was grounded in something utterly fundamental and so they weren't distracted or caught up or you know sidetracked by by these subtle experiences and also when we talk of the whole subtle realm i mean you mentioned spirits i think it's it's a whole whole potpourri of possibilities there you know some of it very dark and some of it not like you know star wars talks about you can have powers and yet go over to the dark side and uh so i i don't think it's some if we really want to understand reality in its totality, if we want to have this map that we were talking about earlier, I think all this is going to have to be part of that map, but um, because it, it is part of the whole picture of creation. Um, but, I th but what you said I think is very good about 
how to put it in the proper context and priority with regard to what we're really ultimately, you know, shooting for. Yeah. Here's a question. Uh, Guy Davies in London asks, do you have any guidance on how to balance surrender and letting go of control with the power of focus and concentration? I experience intensity of energy and feel drawn to simply letting go and allowing the energy to move freely, and concentration feels like manipulation of experience. Yet at the same time, I sense that deep commitment to shamatha or similar practice can serve very powerfully in supporting surrender to God. Yeah, I think there's a lot of pieces in that uh, question. We we can look upon world mysticism as a dialectical process. There's an interplay and it's not just one polarity, there are a lot of polarities. So one of the polarities is the degree to which we're making effort uh, during formal practice versus the degree to which we sort of let go of effort. And my personal philosophy is that there's a place for both and that they're complementary skills, not contradictory skills. So I encourage people to sometimes bear down and try to implement a intentional procedure, but also to sometimes ease up and totally let go of that and to explore both sides without thinking that if I do one, it's going to militate against my ability to do the other. Mm -hmm. So I would say basically sometimes sort of uh, have that intention and that effort um, and other times let go, just be clear which one you're doing which and you may primarily at a given time in your practice prefer one approach versus the other, but I think it's valuable to at least occasionally try both. Okay. So that's one thing. And then I should say that's, yeah, I think that's enough said about that. Uh, surrender is a tricky thing. I like to use the word equanimity uh, because it's an unusual word and therefore I can define it as a technical term. And one of the things that I say about equanimity is that it's a relationship to sensory experience. It's the ability to allow sensory experience to come and go without push and pull. Essentially, in terms of traditional Buddhism, it's a letting go of craving and aversion, which is the push and pull, right? Around the natural flow of the senses. Now, the reason that I bring up sensory experience and speak of equanimity as a relationship to sensory experience is that this then allows us to have a clear conversation 
that distinguishes equanimity from things like indifference and so forth. So I would say that indifference or apathy is a relationship to objective circumstances. And objective circumstances are known through sensory experience and through that only actually because even thought is a sensory experience, mental image, mental talk and such. So we know about the objective world through sensory experience. But what's happening in the objective world is a different critter from our sensory experience. For example, who has power uh, in a, a, a certain country at a certain time is an objective circumstance. If I like the person that has power in a certain country and where I live, say, then that person having power is going to produce a lot of joyful sensory experience for me. I'm going to have joy and I'm going to uh, have, uh, uh, you know, be chipper, etc., etc. Let's say that I don't like the person that has power in the country where I live. Then let's say that they're going to have power for at least four years. I'm not saying one way or the other about specifics. I'm not saying I like or dislike. That's not my place to say. I'm just giving the general principles. Right. So it means that for the next four years, every single day, I'm going to experience rage, terror, grief, shame, and confusion. Because this isn't the way things are supposed to be. That's what that means. However, that is a sensory experience. My ability to have equanimity with that sensory experience is my ability to have that sensory experience motivate and direct my behavior. It is the, and it militates against that sensory experience, driving and distorting my behavior and paralyzing me. And it also, my ability to have equanimity with the sensory phenomena that I just described, rage, terror, grief, shame in the emotional body and confusion in the mind. My ability to have equanimity with those will mean that although those, although those may go off like a Vesuvius every day when I turn on Yahoo and see that leader, they do not obscure the primordial perfection for me. That's because I have a relationship of equanimity to that sensory experience. So it's all good. It's all good. It doesn't, it doesn't obscure the primordial perfection. It motivates and directs me to effective action. But equanimity with a sensory experience does not mean acceptance of the objective reality that underlies that. The objective condition, there's someone 
that I don't like that's in power, let's say, for example, could be in any country, any time. I'm just giving a general example here. I I might not accept that. Yeah, um, I mean, it doesn't mean you don't have preferences, but it means well, you... it it's it means you. It's important. It, it means you. Yes, it, it you can have preferences Opinions, with regards to yeah. the objective world. Mm -hmm. Okay. The thing is. So when you talk about surrender, I would say, yes, surrender to the experience of rage, terror, grief, shame, and confusion, but not necessarily surrender to the objective condition um, that's causing that sensory experience. Yeah. Good. The other, you, I think it was yesterday, you and I, or maybe the day before, you and I spoke, and um, you mentioned that you had some kind of an interesting brain hack or something that you had developed. And I, um, before we run out of time, I want to talk about that. But there was a point toward the end of your book where you talk about three goals for the rest of your life, with each goal more ambitious than its predecessor. Um, if, you, if you like, I'll just read these quickly. Goal number one was to reformulate the path to enlightenment in a modern, secular, and science-based vocabulary. I wanted to create a system that is completely free from the cultural trappings and doctrinal pre preconceptions of traditional Buddhism, and yet is capable of bringing people to classical enlightenment. In my opinion, I have made significant strides towards creating such a system. You want to comment on that before I go to goal number two? No, it's, it's good if they're interested. Um, I have a name for it. I call it Unified Mindfulness, and there's two websites there's shinzen.org and then there's uh, unifiedmindfulness.com mm -hmm. and you can find out uh, about it by going to those websites. Okay, good. Um, so your second goal was to develop a fully modern delivery system that would make the practice of that path available to any person in the world, regardless of where they may live, what their work or familiar responsibility, familial responsibilities may be, whatever their health situation may be, and whatever their financial situation might be. You believe your conference call-based monthly home practice program has made that feasible? We um, that's, that's the best I can come up with at this point. I'm also developing apps with two companies that uh, will interactively sort of eventually be 24-7 uh, personal mindfulness coaches with artificial intelligence, that will also be helpful. But right now, the only thing that I have actually functioning, and once again, you find that at shinzen.org, uh, is a description of what we call the home practice program. So yeah, that's the delivery system. Cool. And then um, your third goal was to help develop a technology of enlightenment, a science-based intervention powerful enough to make enlightenment readily available to the majority of humanity. And you went on to talk about what you called your happiest thought, which was a phrase Einstein used. Um, your happiest thought, most likely there are things that are true and important about enlightenment that neither the Buddha nor any of the great masters of the past knew because to know them requires an understanding of modern science. We kind of talked about that earlier. Along with a new neuroscience-based model of enlightenment would presumably come new neuroscience-based technologies that could accelerate the practice of meditation, making classical enlightenment available to a significant percentage of the world's population. And um, let's spend a few minutes talking about that. And there were some objections to this that I thought were interesting that uh, we might touch upon as we, as we discuss it. 
So what was this thing you were alluding to the other day? Some kind of a, a I think you said, called it a hack or a brain, something. That... Well, yeah. <laughs> People, um, um, this, is, uh, this is a contentious area. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something I've given a lot of thought to. Um, so the... Um, the lose-lose situation for me is um, a really uh, comprehensive discussion of all of the issues involved in this would take several hours. And um, I'm starting to get a little tired, so uh, we don't have know, coming on to, you know, we're coming on to a couple hours right. here. I talk about some of those issues in the book. There are, there's this list of predictable objections. As soon as you start to talk about this, um, there is this predictable list of uh, yabbas. <laughs> yeah, I can even read them for you since you're a little tired. Um, the, the one is the, the, the role of Maitreya, the, the you know, next Buddha, is not to create a new version of the Dharma, but merely to revive forgotten truth of the former Buddhas. Another objection is that you're advocating some process that automatically zaps you with enlightenment, circumventing any need for study or practice. I remember seeing some cartoon, that, that it was like this lady that had the enlightenment patch on her arm, and she, she said, I can get enlightened while cleaning my house. And a third was that you're advocating something unnatural, that we're kind of meddling perhaps with brain physiology in ways that we don't fully understand and we're going to screw ourselves up while attempting to enlighten ourselves. So there, there's some... Those are a few and there's actually a, about a half dozen others besides yeah. that. And those yabbas are all legitimate. They need to really be discussed and... Uh, honored and thought through. But we're not going to have time to do that, but I just want to um, say that um, uh, it's not like I haven't thought about all of the possible objections or negative consequences of this notion. It's just that when I think it all through, uh, and think about the probabilities as best I can guess. The preponderance comes down to there's a high probability, but not a certainty, that this would be a very, very good thing for this planet. <laughs> but so we're not going to be able to, because I can just already visualize the raft of questions that are going to come based on what I'm about to say. And we're just not going to have a chance to uh, uh, address those. So the way that we've always had enlightenment on this planet ever since we had literate civilization, uh, literate civilizations has been there's a conceptual map that we give to people. And then there are these techniques. And then we encourage them to do the techniques and let time pass. And the combination of this view plus these techniques will, with time, bring you to happiness independent of conditions. Now, 
prior to literate civilizations, they didn't have that. They didn't need that, probably. <laughs> Just their life and their ceremonies would tend to move people in that direction. So, you know, originally humans just had a hard life and um, a simple life and probably uh, a certain percentage of people just based on the lifestyle would come to this realization of oneness or emptiness uh, or happiness independent of condition. You think then, the difficulty of the life you think was conducive to that realization? The simplicity and the difficulty, because yeah, yeah. what are you going to do? Uh, I mean, if that we, were true, though, would we not see people in sort of African villages and whatnot having this realization? That's right. Well, maybe we are. I don't know. Well, a certain number of people, I think, would have. Mm -hmm. But I'm not saying, I'm not idealizing tribal life because okay. other things militated against that. But I think that there would have been natural tendencies for some people just based on the lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But then literate civilizations arose and we developed something more systematic. And that involves two components, a conceptual piece hey, here's some ideas about how to think about this, and meditation techniques. And then you do these techniques, and as, the, you know, as a result of that, things may get dramatically better with time. So our current paradigm is some ideas and at least one focused technique, and then let time pass. I'm not rejecting that paradigm, but I'm saying that we may be able to, may, notice said may, be able to add something to that. And what we would add to it would be a technological boost of some sort that when combined with the concepts and the focus techniques would dramatically accelerate the process. And that's uh, now, when you do things that influence your brain, uh, some people call those brain hacks. So that's what I was referring to. I was referring to uh, different ideas about what might turn into an enlightenment accelerator on this planet. Yeah, and you're not necessarily talking about surgical procedures. I mean, for instance... Um there are certain portions of the brain that which if incapacitated by a stroke like Jill Bolte Taylor had can result in uh, or, or their incapacitation can result in certain awakenings because they were suppressing some kind of experience by their activity and perhaps those things can be temporarily and harmlessly suppressed just to give one a taste of, of a different perspective um, and I don't know if that's the kind of thing you're talking about as a brain hack, but, um, you know, we're, we're not talking ho hopefully about, um, you know, some kind of new age lobotomy, which, you know, actually we don't, where we don't completely understand what we're doing, but we do it anyway in the hopes that it's going to have a good effect. I would say that a good initial prospect would be something like uh, 
what you talked about. Not the uh, ice pick into your orbits uh, that where we like damage your tissue forever, but something that suspends what's getting in the way of the primordial perfection mm -hmm. physiologically and therefore gives you a perspective from which you can optimally learn. So yes, that would be a logical place to start. Mm -hmm. Because if we think of enlightenment as something that we have to create de novo in a person, that's very hard to do. But if we think of enlightenment as something that's just waiting to happen and all we have to do is eliminate something that's in the way, well, that's a much easier task. And in fact, the traditional formulations of Buddhism imply that latter point of view. If you look at the Four Noble Truths, the logical structure of it is, okay, there's a reality called suffering. Suffering has a necessary cause called craving or non-equanimity. If you eliminate the craving, um, a positive happiness independent of conditions will automatically arise. And there is a procedure that you can do that will eliminate the craving. So there is a sufficient intervention that will eliminate a necessary cause for, uh, for non-perfection in your life. Um, that's the basic logic of the Buddhist formulation. So it is formulated not so much in terms of getting something, but of getting something that eliminates something. So if that's the case, then there may be things that we can do at a physiological level that temporarily suspend what gets in the way of what's waiting to happen automatically, which is this primordial perfection. Yeah. And so the trick is to try to figure out two things, what it is that we need to suspend and how we can suspend it in a way that is safe and fairly simple and reversible so that um, we might be able to accelerate people's pro uh, pro progress. So there, there are really two huge questions. One is what, what do we suspend? And the second is how do we suspend it? Right. Ass assuming we're using this paradigm. And then assuming that yeah, uh, so those are the two questions. Right. So that's, those are two questions that I am very interested in finding an answer to. And I'm sure that psychedelics and entheogens are coming to people's minds right now as they're listening to this, and people have been doing those things for thousands of years. Um, 
And that's a whole topic in itself about what those suspend and what the harmful side effects, if any, may be. Uh, then there are things like isolation tanks, like that guy Lily, John Lilly was his name, you know, and others have used. I used to own one of those. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, so there's that sort of thing. I, I have a friend named Rob Cox who wrote a book called The Pillar of Celestial Fire, and he he contended that in ancient Egypt they actually had technologies that were in, in the pyramids and stuff that bathed people in subtle energy so as to accelerate their enlightenment. So I guess there's the prospect of sort of um, futuristic technologies, which may also have been ancient, that might um, so enliven and awaken our our, our physiologies on a, even on a cellular level. And, and you know, when you think about it, if what we were talking about earlier, some kind of mass enlightenment is in the works in the world, then, then in, in a way the whole world might become an incubator for accelerated evolution where sort of the collective consciousness is much more um, elevated and intense and people who aren't even aware that any such thing is happening are going to find their, their evolution um, yeah, it's quickened. Yeah, it's a zeitgeist thing. Yeah. It's a spirit of the t- uh, uh, I mean, the Maharishi talked about that and it, did, it, yeah. it's reasonable mm-hmm. that something like that might happen. Yeah. Well, we've been going on for quite a while, and I know. And you mentioned you're getting tired, so I don't want to. Don't keep... you want to? Don't you want to ask me what my ideas are about? Oh yes, please. What... I, I just didn't want to um, overstay my welcome, but please tell, uh-huh. say that. Yeah, I'm not that tired. <laughs> Good. Um, I, I have some candidates. Now that doesn't mean I think that these are going to do it. It just means I have some candidates. Mm-hmm. I should say that, okay, we, at the very beginning of this interview, we talked about the scientific method. Mm-hmm. And I talked about uh, part of the scientific method being experiment. Now, what makes experiment powerful is that you, um, you make a hypothesis and then and that hypothesis will uh, entail consequences. So if X is true, then this, this thing will happen in the experiment. And so if this thing doesn't happen, then we can assume that our original hypothesis was not correct. Mm -hmm. So if A implies B, logically, then not B is going to imply not A. (laughs) So we can eliminate things by uh, the fact, we can eliminate a, a theory or a process, a technology, by seeing that it does not create the effect that we would predict, okay? So if A, then B, not B, therefore not A, okay? And that's a lot, it's not the same as empirical proof, but that's the way it works out logically. So there are many, many, many claims of, hey, I've got something that's going to dramatically accelerate enlightenment, 
uh, you know, it's this, it's that, it's this other thing. So here's my thing. My thing is, here's what I mean by, uh, we're gonna make tangible what we mean by dramatically accelerate enlightenment on this planet. What we mean is that there would be tens of millions, hundreds of millions perhaps, of people that have attained what we in Buddhism call stream entry or what in Zen they call initial kenshin. Now, that's a fairly well-defined stage. So if we are talking about tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people getting there in a relatively short period of time, say with a few years of practice, three or four years of practice, as opposed to 30 or 40 years of practice. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Okay, so anything short of that is not going to impress me at all. So you come to me and say, hey, I got the technology that's going to, you know, this is going to do it. We, we need psychedelics or we need this or we need that. So then I say, okay, within a generation, will that lead to uh, 200 million stream enters on this planet? And the answer is no current technology can deliver that. However, I have a dream <laughs> and the dream is that there would be a technology that is that industrial strength, strong enough to change the course of human history dramatically for the better. So anyone that claims they've got something that's super duper pooper, <laughs> hypotheses have consequences. If you really have come up with something that is going to be impressive by my standards, then within a generation, this planet will radically change. If what you've come up with does not reasonably bring about that effect, it ain't cutting it by my standards. Yeah, we don't want to wait a generation to find out either. We should be able to test it now you would start to see things, right? Yeah. Presumably something as powerful as I'm hoping for would um, spread exponentially. So you, you know, it, it would definitely hit the mainstream media within a few months, okay, if someone came up with this. So my strategy is a place to start would be to look for two things. Where, where we might cause a temporary safe suspending of the blockage and how we might suspend it in a way that's temporary and safe, not invasive into your brain, okay? So there is uh, so you mentioned Jill Bolta-Taylor. So Jill Bolta-Taylor had a, uh, a massive stroke that I think probably took out half her brain, okay? And her YouTube is pretty viral. 
And basically she says the spiritual awakening that occurred as a result of that lesion, that trauma, was worth it. Uh, which is like WTF, right? right? It's worth, this is so good, it's worth losing half your brain over. Uh, that must be pretty <laughs> effing good, right? But this is a scientist and this is a reasonable person. I'm paraphrasing, but essentially she's saying this. So is there a kinder, gentler way? Is there a kinder, gentler lesion that does something like that, that, that we can make a virtual version of? So yeah, let me just interject a quick thought here and that you were talking earlier about how marvelous the brain is and how it's the most complex, amazing thing we know. It's not bone marrow. I think it's hubris to suggest that we can do away with any portion of the brain, I, whatever enlightenment may be. I think we, to really live it as fully as it can possibly be lived, I think we want our whole brain and our whole nervous system to be fully enlivened to the extent they can be. We can't um, be, be thinking in terms of doing away with any of them. And, and let me just throw in another thing here to make sure you address it, and that is that one objection that comes up is, you know, enlightenment is not just some experience. It's, as I understand it, ideally, a complete remake of one's whole person you know, the behavior and compassion and all these, all these nice qualities. And so can you take a technology such as you're suggesting, give it to a, a kind of a s serial killer or something and, and turn him into a saint? Or is there going to have to be a really thorough behavioral purification and modification? I'm thinking of um, Valmiki, who wrote the Ramayana, who was a highway robber and murderer, and, and he, you know, he underwent this shift and went into samadhi for seven years, and an anthill built up around him, and he came out a saint. But, I mean, can, can that be part of your formula also? I'm going to suspect that uh, additional training is needed that just a zap is not enough. Yeah. That all the other things that you're saying are probably going to be needed, but that the zap might dramatically uh, accelerate things. Might inspire but, one to uh, get the other stuff in order also. Well, I what I would assume is that let's say that we had this zap, that that would be presented as part of a larger uh, program. Mm -hmm. It's not like, hey, you're just going to come in the office, we're going to zap you, and then, hey, we're going to send you out. Right. Uh, remember I said there's perspective and there are techniques, and I'm not saying that we're going to get rid of those. So part of the, the view or the perspective would entail all of the uh, ethical and other things that you're saying. That's why I said that up front. Good. That that's still going to be part of it, and meditation techniques are probably also going to be part of it. But one of the things that makes the spreading of meditation slower at this time is that the rewards are not dramatic and quick. They're initially subtle and typically the really dramatic stuff 
takes a while. So if we have a way that the rewards can be dramatic and quick, that's going to get people motivated to, to take this on. So what so if we survey different neurological conditions that might in some ways have overlap with enlightenment, you will discover that there's a little known and rather bizarre neurological condition that is a caricature, not of stream entry, not of once returner, not of non-returner. It is a caricature of arhatship. There is a known neurological condition. And in case people a, didn't catch that word, you said arhatship, which is arhatship, enlightenment, full right? Yeah, yeah. Good. or at least full enlightenment in the sense of completely breaking the identification with the mind and body. Right. That dimension. Now, you notice that I said it is a caricature. I didn't say it is our hardship, okay? It's a caricature of our hardship. So if a human being looked like their cartoon, we would say they're deformed. But still, the cartoon of the human in some ways sort of resembles the human. So there's a caricature of enlightenment that is a recognized but fairly unusual medical condition. But it's it can be found on uh, Wikipedia if you're interested in looking into it. It's called athymhormia, A-T-H, Y-M-H-O-R-M-I-A. It's known by other names also. My favorite name is the French name. It's mostly been French uh, doctors that have described this. Perte d'auto-activation psychique. Loss of auto-activation of selfhood. Okay, if you talk to, the, in the most extreme case, the purest case of athymhormic syndrome, if you talk to them, they have no deficits and they're just like they were before, they're normal. But if you just leave them alone, they flatline into a state of absolute no self. And they have not the slightest uh, inclination to eat or to avoid pain. If you ask them what they're not paralyzed and they're um, not depressed, they'll sit there alert all day and when you ask them what were you thinking all day, they say absolutely nothing. I have no thoughts at all. They never complain about their condition or about anything else for that matter. They can feel physical pain normally, but without a perception of suffering. You could, in a 
you know, do the a bizarre thing of, you know, holding a cigarette to their skin or something and make a, a second degree burn and they wouldn't move. And if you ask them, did they feel it? Yes. If you ask them, did they suffer? No. So we have perfect mental tranquility. <laughs> we have, remember the Buddha said, desire, craving is the necessary condition for suffering. There's no cravings, no complaints. You can read the, what first alerted me to this was uh, an article in Scientific American Mind that appeared in, I think, April of 2005. And it has the intriguing title, Drowning Mr. M. And it opens with this vignette of this person swimming in their backyard. And suddenly they just are not inclined to swim or move or do anything. And because their head's in the water, they are breathing, but they're breathing water. And they know they're breathing water and they feel themselves drowning. They're essentially being waterboarded. Uh, and they know that they could just stick their head up, or he knows he could just stick his head up, but who cares? Drinking, uh, breathing water, breathing air, being alive, being dead, he knows he's dying, but so what? They're not so different anymore. Uh, his daughter comes out, sees he's sinking to the bottom of the pool, screams, it activates his normal self. And he kicks flails up to the surface and doesn't die. Well, I've been meditating for a long time and I can't breathe water as easily as I breathe air. I mean, I have some taste of not being my mind and body, but it's not that extreme. What we're talking about here is something that is not subtle. It's not subtle. But the weird thing is they're normal. They just can't auto-activate the self. But if you activate them, for, so I, I had a, uh, from the outside, in the most extreme case, the most classic case, there's actually no deficits. Now you may say, what causes this? Well, it can be caused by things, but it has to be lesions to a certain loop in the brain and the lesions have to be bilateral they have to take out both sides of this, this loop that um, exists on both sides of the brain. And the loop goes from cortex to the dorsal striatum to the globus pallidus to the thalamus and then back to the cortex. Now actually there's about a half dozen loops like that. And this is an area of neuroanatomy that's described as uh, the basal ganglia system. And there are these parallel loops that all have that characteristic of going from cerebral cortex to striatum, to pallidum, to 
thalamus, and then back to cortex. These loops do different things. And if some of them get messed up, you get conditions like Huntington's disease or Parkinsonism. But if you get just the right trauma in just the right place on both sides to just the right circuit, it creates a thymormic syndrome. It creates a parody of Buddhist enlightenment or enlightenment. So I got to ask myself, if we were able to temporarily and safely and reversibly put you in that state, would you be able to learn how to meditate very, very quickly? If we think of meditation as, if we think of equanimity as being an important factor, after all, the Buddha sort of implied that equanimity was the chief factor that brought about liberation. If we think of equanimity as an important factor, but not the only factor, I got to ask myself, I'm not giving any answers, but I'm certainly asking a question. I got to ask myself, if we physiologically induce perfect equanimity in a person, and then from the outside, heteroactivate them, because they can't do anything from the inside, but if we, by an interactive guidance, heteroactivate them to do a meditation technique, will the fact that they're in perfect equanimity allow them to develop the other components more quickly? I don't know the answer to that question, but yes is not an unreasonable hypothesis. And would they need to um, sort of go into the laboratory and have this thing induced every time in order to meditate satisfactorily? Or would, would their meditation okay. not be very enjoyable if this thing hadn't been induced and so they wouldn't keep doing it? Okay, so it is sometimes said in science that the important thing is the questions. They're more important than the answer. So I just asked what I consider to be a very important question for basic science and for uh, contemplative neuroscience and maybe for clinical medicine all around the world. Because what we may be looking at here is an alternative mechanism for anesthesia, analgesia, addiction recovery, maybe. These people have no thoughts. That means they have no, no spontaneous thoughts. That means they have no spontaneous negative thoughts. Hmm. What happens if we take a, dep a clinically depressed person and induce this? Will their depression be suspended? Well, it's possible because we've, they can't, they, they can't auto activate thought. Okay. Or will they just so, be depressed and not care? Kind of like in pain and not care. Well, but that may be depressed and not care. If it were really deep and clear, could be the definition of enlightenment. <laughs> because you've given up, right? If you go, if you look at the Duke 
jnanas or some of the emotional challenges that are described in Theravada, they do sort of look like depression and anxiety, but you work them through. You make them healthy, so to speak. Anyway, that's a whole other discussion. My point is to honor the question you just asked. So I said in science, asking the right question. I just asked a deep and important question and you just asked the next deep and important question that no one knows an answer to because no one's ever asked it, except you and me, <laughs> which is, would there be a training effect that's permanent? that when this is over, that person is fundamentally different. Now, with stream entry, it is, quote, permanent, okay? You're never the same again. So my question is, would this procedure lead to a permanent transformation that you didn't need, such that you didn't need the procedure again? A few times in the lab and you're done. No one knows the answer to this question. But a yes is not unreasonable. It's not ridiculous that that could be the case. So I've, uh, I've got a model disease here. <laughs> In science, they talk about how great it is when you have a model organism. It's like an organism perfectly made for your research. Well, I've got a model disease here. I've got a neurological deficit perfectly designed to answer questions about self and no self, about the nature of craving at a physiological level because we know exactly what causes these conditions. I can name the nuclei, okay? Dorsal medial uh, thalamic nucleus, okay? The head of the caudate nucleus, the, the ventral, uh, uh, ventral pallidum, the globus pallidus, okay? These are known specific regions of the brain. Apparently, if you take them out bilaterally, and don't damage any, and don't mess with anything else, you get this thing. Now, that perfect storm doesn't happen very often. You have to have just the right stroke, or just the right tumor, or just the right uh, carbon monoxide poisoning to take out exactly that and nothing else. And then you get this wear syndrome. So my thing is, well, what if we could create if we could temporarily, bilaterally take those targets offline for a person that has already had a little bit of experience, but maybe not a whole lot with meditation, and then they are interactively guided to keep track, would the fact that they are apparently in the deepest possible equanimity that a human can have the kind of equanimity that allows you to be waterboarded and it not a problem? Would that fact give us a place of neuroplasticity whereby we could quickly train them in the other things they would need besides that for 
let's say, stream entry. If, in fact, it works that way, then all we need to do is find a way of creating this modulation. However, that's not so easy because these are small targets. They're very small targets and they're, in the, they're deep in the, in the brain. They're not on the surface. So small targets deep in the brain to modulate those, especially to, mod, to uh, modulate them, to um, uh, impede them to the point of taking them offline completely, which is probably what you'd need to do. You need to not just downregulate, you, you need to suspend. Now we know that you live, you'll be okay if they're suspended because people with these, with aciformic syndrome are alive, it doesn't kill them. So presumably it's not dangerous. But how do you reach such, a, such small targets so deep with a powerful intervention that takes them offline but in a way that they can come, like you said, okay, you, you put the, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. You have to do it in a way that you can bring them back and everything functions again. The only thing that's changed is that their perspective is now altered from, there's a thing inside me called a self to either I've realized my true self or I realize there truly is no self, take your pick. And then, that new perspective is permanent based on what we did. So, well, you know, I mean, the, you, you and I having done psychedelics back in the 60s and all realized that uh, you can have an experience that, um, go, that, you, that goes away, but that changes you permanently because you've, you've glimpsed something and you can never forget that glimpse and that such a thing exists, you know? So same thing could apply here maybe. Yes, but what I'm hoping is that it applies here at a much, much more industrial strength level. Because remember my criterion? I think we could get the entire world high on psychedelics for the next 10 years and it's not going to really help human history very much. Yeah. We did that uh, back in the 60s. We got yeah, a lot we, of, yeah, you're right. We got you, a lot of the world know, high. Like, but <laughs> did, uh, you know, uh, been there, done that. And, yeah. The age of Aquarius turned into the age of uh, Donald Trump. So right. go figure. So we need something more industrial strength. So here's the thing about neuromodulation. Things that influence your brain, brain hacks. Current technology is very limited. I don't care what the advertising hype is. Basically, either the effects are very subtle or the effects are intense, but you can't aim them. Or you can't, they're intense and you can aim them, but they're ridiculously invasive and dangerous. Mm. So what we need is something that you can aim very precisely, that's very intense, and that's relatively simple and that's safe and that's non-invasive and that when you turn it off in a half an hour or so the effects wear off and 
that's what we're looking for. So I think I know the targets. I just mentioned them. I have two candidates for the intervention that could modulate those targets. One is a new and improved version of transcranial magnetic uh, stimulation, TMS. Problem with current TMS is it, you can't aim it. Now there's something called an H coil and there's some research going on that may improve our ability to aim TMS stimulation. If that got to be uh, precise enough, that, that might do it. And TMS has been around now for a while and it's FDA approved for depression. So that's one possibility. Then there's another technology that has literally only been used on a human being a couple times. It's completely cutting edge. TMS is relatively esoteric, but it's been used on tens of thousands of human beings. This thing, this other technology is in the investigation, the just beginning of the investigational stage. However, one of the times it was used, one of the handful of times it has been used on a human being occurred just two months ago. It was used at UCLA to wake up a coma patient, if you can believe that. And what you say is this other technology, low intensity focused ultrasound. Life up, low intensity focused ultrasound pulsation. You can look it up on the internet and you can read the story about how they woke the guy up at UCLA, it's amazing. They directed a beam of focused ultrasound actually towards an area close to one of the targets that I'm interested in. But it was a stimulatory uh, beam and it woke the person out of their coma. So you heard it here first. <laughs> I am suggesting that the circuits involved in the Athymormic syndrome might be something that we could learn from. And I'm suggesting two ways of modulating, both of which are believed to be safe and uh, they are temporary. They wear off. Uh, a more a precise form of transcranial magnetic stimulation that we can aim or low intensity focused ultrasound that we know we can aim. The question is, will it be strong enough to modulate in the dramatic way that I'm interested in? So this is, um, you know, people often ask, well, do you have anything tangible to suggest with respect to what might, uh, you know, might be that technology? Well, this, these are my 
this is my best uh, suggestion at this particular point. Yeah, and it's all the more tangible because it's not just theoretical. This is something you're actually actively pursuing and you've got some funding and presumably there's going to be some kind of experimentation, right, on this. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you're right, it's not theoretical. I'm on it. I am consulting on research where we are looking into exactly what I just described. Yeah. And that's got me pretty freaking uh, stoked. Yeah, well, that's a great. So I'd say, I guess we should say to people, stay tuned. And if, if it looks like uh, hundreds of millions of people are getting enlightened all of a sudden, then as you said a minute ago, you saw it here first. <laughs> yeah. So that's great. It's really exciting. I really appreciate your practical attitude, you know, of, well, first, your open-mindedness, like you're not locked into any one thing. You've done a variety of very interesting things in your life in order to experience them firsthand and see what their value was, and you weren't, you know, no fundamentalist bone in your body. Um, and also this whole marriage of science and spirituality, I think, is it's very exciting to me. I think it's very important, and I'm, I'm really glad that you're a proponent of that and they're doing active work, you know, to help to consummate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Consummate the marriage right, of the century. Right. Exactly. Mar the marriage of the century. If, if, if this works out, this this could be very interesting, the offspring of, of the best of the East and the best of the West. Yeah, you may end up having to change your name from Shinzen to Yenta. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's my claim to fame. <laughs> right. I was I was the Yenta of the New Age. Right. So let me just make up some of the usual wrap-up points. Um, really appreciate you taking the extra time to to talk. I know originally we said, well, maybe we'll go an hour and a half, and we've gone maybe two and a half. But you, you got a resurgence of energy, I think, when we started talking about this last point. So I'm really glad you hung in there with me and, and we had a chance to talk about that. Um, obviously, you mentioned your websites a couple of times and I'll be linking to them from your page on batgap.com. And I'm sure there's a lot there to explore. Your book is very interesting. It's, it's interesting just to read the introduction to the book by the fellow who helped you put it together. It's been a work of over a decade of really exhaustive, thorough perusal of all of your talks and writings and everything else, and the, and the guy helped you congeal and that. And the guy is Michael Taft. Michael, yeah. Has, uh, he has his own web presence, which is very impressive also. Ah, good. Um, yeah, I just, I, I read that introduction. I thought, well, this is going to be quite a book, and it was. Uh, unfortunately, the weeks rolled by, and I didn't get a chance to read it to cover to cover, but I'm going to keep it and keep reading. Um, so I'll be linking to that book on your page on batgap.com. And anything else you want to tell people about personally what you're offering, what you're doing, you know, <laughs> any upcoming events or anything like no, that? No, no, I think I've already said Yeah, too they'll find much. all that on your website. I, I've said too much. All right. <laughs> so let me make my usual wrap-up points. I've, I've been speaking with Shinzen Young. This is part of an ongoing series. There have been hundreds of them. Hopefully there will be hundreds more. If you go to batgap.com, look under the past interviews menu, you'll see them all organized. Sign up for the email notification if you like. There's an audio podcast. Um, there's the donate button. 
and explore the menus because they're just a, a bunch of things and the, the site keeps growing and changing and you know to work in progress um, so thanks for listening or watching and we'll see you for the next one thank you and Shinzi. thank you and thank you for this wonderful work and this offering that you're giving to the world this is katakaraniya the buddha said uh to praise a person, he would say, you're doing what needs to be done. Yeah. So do, you are so doing what needs to be done, and I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Well, thank you. As the Beatles sang, we're all doing what we can, you know? So thanks a lot, Shinzen, and then thanks to those who've been listening or watching. We'll see you for the next one.